All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. We are on page 48, chapter 2. Political Policing in the Postwar Era. With the rise of the civil rights movement came more repressive policing. In the South, police became the front line for suppressing the movement. They denied protest permits, threatened and beat demonstrators, made discriminatory arrests, and failed to protect demonstrators from angry mobs and vigilante actions, including beatings, disappearances, bombings, and assassinations. All of this occurred to preserve a system of formal racial discrimination and economic exploitation. In northern and western cities, the suppression of the movement sometimes took a more nuanced approach at first, but when that failed, overt violence soon followed. Many cities allowed a wide variety of protest actions to occur with only minor restrictions. Boycotts and pickets in support of southern organizing were largely tolerated, as was protest aimed at local governments calling for jobs, education, and social services. As these movements grew and became more militant, however, they were subjected to ever more repressive tactics. New, quote, red squads, end quote, were developed that gathered intelligence through informants, infiltrators, and even agent provocateurs who actively worked to undermine groups like the Black Panthers and the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE. Eventually, local police, often working in cooperation with the FBI, undertook the overt suppression of these movements through targeted arrest on trumped-up charges and ultimately even assassinations of prominent leaders such as Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader killed in a hell of gunfire in the middle of the night during a police raid of his Chicago apartment, the American Indian Movement and the Latino-based Brown Berets and Young Lords faced similar forms of repression. These movements were suppressed in part based on counterinsurgency strategies that emerged out of the foreign policy of that era. From 1962 to 1974, the U.S. government operated a major international police training initiative staffed by experienced American police executives called the Office of Public Safety, OPS. This agency worked closely with the CIA to train police in areas of Cold War conflict, including South Vietnam, Iran, Uruguay, Argentina, and Brazil. According to internal documents, the training emphasized counterinsurgency, including espionage, bomb-making, and interrogation techniques. In many parts of the world, these officers were involved in human rights abuses, including torture, disappearance, and extrajudicial killings. Over $200 million in firearms and equipment was distributed to foreign policy departments, foreign police departments, and 1,500 U.S. personnel were involved in training a million officers overseas. Even more troubling in that is that many of the trainers moved in large numbers into law enforcement, including the Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, FBI, and numerous local and state police forces, bringing with them a more militarized vision of policing steeped in Cold War imperatives of suppressing social movements through counterintelligence, militarized riot suppression techniques, and heavy-handed crime control. They applied this counterinsurgency mindset to the political uprisings occurring at home. 
OPS director Byron Engel testified before the Kerner Commission on Civil Disorders that, quote, in working with the police in various countries, we have acquired a great deal of experience in dealing with violence ranging from demonstrations and riots to guerrilla warfare. Much of this experience may be useful in the U.S., end quote. The result was a massive expansion of federal funding for the police under the Johnson administration. Under the guise of professionalizing the police, the federal government began spending hundreds of millions of dollars to provide police with more training and equipment with few strings attached. Unfortunately and unsurprisingly, rather than reducing the burden of racialized policing, this new professionalization movement merely enhanced police power and led directly to the development of SWAT teams and mass incarceration. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme again within this first within the second chapter, excuse me. And all of these everything in this second chapter here has been from the origins of policing starting with some of the original police forces that st- that were in Great Britain and in in Europe and how some of those ideologies transferred transferred over to the American institution of policing then we also heard learned about the first institutions of policing that were created in America and what they were used for how the main things that they were used for were controlling labor disputes and controlling the labor movement that was taking place and and helping employers to have control over employees who were striking and trying to get fair wages. Then we learned about the state po- the creation of the state police and how the state police was were an institution that answered more directly to the politicians who were in power of, uh, in these states. One of the commonalities we've seen is that concepts and ideologies that of colonialism of America and and other countries and the way they were policing people in other countries, how they transfer those thoughts over to how they police people here in, in America as well. So we've seen that with the transfer of the ideology of the Britain police and the Bobbies to the American policing. We've seen it from the transferring of the ideologies that existed in the Philippines uh, and then the Pennsylvania police. We've seen, and it's been also, as we've been reading through this, it's been a fast forwarding through time. So we started in the early 16th, 17th century, and now we are getting closer to modern times. Uh, we learned about slave patrols in the South and how slave patrols became the original police that existed in the South with the specific task of controlling the black population. First, when they were enslaved and then even after being freed, still the it was a high priority on, on controlling the freed black population. And they en- enacted vagrancy laws and and what was what were called black codes so that way they would have very they could use small excuses to arrest black people throw black people in jail and then we learned about the Texas Rangers and how the Texas Rangers were used to uh, exploit and oppress the indigenous people in Texas and uh, Mexican ranchers and how they were used by the white people that lived in Texas to basically steal property and steal land and how uh, the 
uh, indigenous people in Mexico, Native Americans in Mexico and uh, Mexican Americans all were discriminated against in Texas and how the Rangers were used to maintain that discrimination. Then, and now we see how in this the 650s, 60s, and 70s when the civil rights movement was in full swing, how the, these police officers were being used to suppress those movements as well, how they were being used to not just suppress in the form of arresting, but also in the form of assassinations, also in the form of uh, espionage. And so throughout this full chapter, we've just seen how many times throughout history police have been used in ways that were not about the protection of a community. Uh, one of the things that has been a commonality, too, was that all of these different all of these different iterations and all of these different time periods, police were being given more and more funding while people within the country who were dealing with what police were supposed to be trying to protect them from were seeing less and less funding. And some of the situations that they were in were becoming more and more extreme. And so. And then also within this, we've read about how. Hollywood and mainstream media glamorize police work and how that worked towards shifting civilians perspective of what it is police do in this country. Okay. Policing today. The past few decades have seen a dramatic expansion in the scope and intensity of police activity. More police than ever before are engaged in more enforcement of more laws, resulting in astronomical levels of incarceration, economic exploitation, and abuse. This expansion mirrors the rise of mass incarceration. It began with the war on crime rhetoric of the 1960s and continued to develop and intensify until today with support from both political parties. This increase in the power of police is tied to a set of economic and political crises. At the political level, politicians were anxious to find new ways to harness the support of white voters in the wake of the civil rights movement. As Michelle Alexander and others have pointed out, Nixon mobilized racial fears through the lens of, quote, law and order, end quote, to convince Southern whites to vote Republican for the first time since Reconstruction. Following the disastrous defeat of Michael Dukakis in 1988 for being, quote, soft on crime, end quote, Democrats came to fully embrace this strategy as well, leading to disasters like Bill Clinton's 1994 crime bill, which added tens of thousands of additional police and expanded the drug and crime wars. America's changing economic realities have played a central role in this process as well. Christian Parnetti has shown how the federal government crashed the economy in the 1970s to, this, to stem the rise of workers' power, leaving millions out of work and creating a new mostly African-American permanent underclass largely excluded from the formal economy. In response, government mobilized at all levels to manage this new, quote, surplus population, end quote, through intensive policing and mass incarceration. The policing of poor and non-white communities became much more intense. As unemployment, poverty, and homelessness increased, government, police, and prosecutors worked together to criminalize huge swaths of the population aided by ideologies like the broken windows theory and the super predator myth. We cannot reduce all policing 
to the active suppression of social movements and the control of racial minorities. Today's police are clearly concerned with matters of public safety and crime control, however misguided their methods are. The advent of CompStat and other management techniques are in fact designed to address serious crime problems and significant resources go into these efforts. But this crime-fighting orientation is itself a form of social control. From Jonathan Simons' Governing Through Crime to Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, there is extensive research to show that what counts as crime and what gets targeted for control is shaped by concerns about race and class inequality and the potential for social and political upheaval. As Jeffrey Ryman points out in The Rich Get Richer and The Poor Get Prison, the criminal justice system excuses and ignores crimes of the rich that produces profound social harms while intensely criminalizing the behaviors of the poor and non-white, including those behaviors that produce few social harms. When the crimes of the rich are dealt with, it's generally through administrative controls and civil enforcement rather than aggressive policing, criminal prosecution, and incarceration, which are reserved largely for the poor and non-white. No bankers have been jailed for the 2008 financial crisis despite widespread fraud and the looting of the American economy, which resulted in mass unemployment, homelessness, and economic dislocation. American crime control policy is structured around the use of punishment to manage the, quote, dangerous classes, end quote, masquerading as a system of justice. The police's concern with crime makes their social control functions more palatable. The transition from the use of militias and military troops to civilian police was a process of engineering greater public acceptance of the social control functions of the state, whether abroad or at home. Today's modern police are not that far removed from their colonialist forebearers. They, too, enforce a system of laws designed to reproduce and maintain economic inequality, usually along racialized lines. As Michelle Alexander has put it, quote, we need an effective system of crime prevention and control in our communities, but that is not what the current system is. This system is better designed to create crime and a perpetual class of people labeled criminals. Saying mass incarceration is an abysmal failure makes sense, though only if one assumes that the criminal justice system is designed to prevent and control crime. But if mass incarceration is understood as a system of social control, specifically racial control, then the system is a fantastic success, end quote. The most damning example of this is the war on drugs in which millions of mostly black and brown people have been ground through the criminal justice system, their lives destroyed and their communities destabilized without reduction in the use or availability of drugs. Everyone wants to live in safe communities, but when individuals and communities look to the police to solve their problems, they are, in essence, mobilizing the machinery of their own oppression. While the police will often go through the motions of crime control, though not always, it is through a lens of class and race skepticism, if not outright animus. While individual officers may not harbor deep biases, though many do, the institution's ultimate purpose has always been one of managing the poor and non-white rather than producing anything resembling true justice. It is understandable that people have come to look to the police to provide them with safety and security. Poor people in particular bear the brunt of street crime. After decades of neoliberal austerity, 
Local governments have no will or ability to pursue the kinds of ameliorative, 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 excuse me. Let me try this again. After decades of neoliberal austerity, local governments have no will or ability to pursue the kinds of ameliorative social policies that might address crime and disorder without the use of armed police. As Simon points out, government has backed up by a repressive criminal justice system. Excuse me. As Simon points out, government has basically abandoned poor neighborhoods to market forces backed up by a repressive criminal justice system. That system stays in power by creating a culture of fear that it claims to be uniquely suited to address. As poverty deepens and housing prices rise, government support for affordable housing has evaporated, leaving in its wake a combination of homeless shelters and aggressive broken windows-oriented policing. As mental health facilities close, police become the first responders to calls for assistance with mental health crises. As youth are left without adequate schools, jobs, or recreational facilities, they form gangs for mutual protection or participate in the black markets of stolen goods, drugs, and sex to survive and are ruthlessly criminalized. Modern policing is largely a war on the poor that does little to make people safer or communities stronger. And even when it does, this is accomplished through the most coercive forms of state power that destroy the lives of millions. Instead of asking the police to solve our problems, we must organize for real justice. We need to produce a society designed to meet people's human needs rather than wallow in the pursuit of wealth at the expense of all else. And then that brings us to the end of chapter two, entitled The Police Are Not Here to Protect You. And I think I'll do what we did with the with chapter one as well, where at the end of the chapter, we just go ahead and end the episode, even if we aren't quite at 30 minutes and have a few reflections. And the reflection I have on the last passage that we just read, because before we read that last passage, we sort of did a full chapter, full chapter reflection. But to me, the ending of that of that passage does a good job of just tying in together all of the hypocrisies that exist within policing. And it points out one second here. It points out how we got to a place where the policing exists at the at the uh extent that it does today with talking about how different politicians began to push the tough on crime rhetoric, speaking about how specifically specifically with Nixon, speaking about how Nixon mobilized racial fears through the lens of law and order. And that's something that you hear politicians talk about now all the time, how they are supporters of law and order, or how they are the law and order candidate. And a saying that sticks out to me, and I can't remember who it is that said this, but they talked about how these politicians can always talk about law and order because they never take the time to talk about justice and how the way they maintain law and order is usually by 
not addressing injustices. And the thing that they're talking about, uh, the order that exists in this country is an order of injustice, is an order of oppression, an order of exploitation, an order of racism. And there's nothing to be there's nothing to be proud of of maintaining that type of order. The laws that exist here, we just went through multiple passages through multiple not just decades, but centuries in this country. And we see how the laws that were being enforced were laws that were disproportionately having a negative impact on black people and on people of color. And so it's easy to advocate for law and order when you are the person, when you are a white person who was on the opposite side of the injustices that exist within the law, who was on the opposite side of the injustices that exist within the order. They, uh, we, they took time in this last passage to speak about how the economy crashed in the 70s and how the federal government allowed the economy to crash because they were trying to stop the rise of workers' power. One of the things that has been a commonality that you see in the, in, in the American society is the struggle that the businesses and organizations and companies have against the the against their workers, how they don't want to give them livable wages, how they don't want to give them uh, specifically livable wages. And how every time that workers fight against that or struggle against that, uh, the government mobilizes against them. And so we've seen that in the, we, they pointed out how that happened in the 70s. And when it happened in the 70s, the people who were the most affected by that were the African-Americans who ended up in a permanent underclass. And from that underclass, which, which existed in the 70s, you can see the rise in, in, in street drugs being sold, the rise in street crime, the rise in, in violent crime that existed. And the people who bore the brunt of that, the people who were arrested the most because of that were black people, the people who were uh, who dealt with the worst parts of, of the drugs trade were black people. The people who dealt with the worst part of the violent crime that exists were black people. And so there was no or in, in communities of color. And so the police upping the amount of police that were in the area or upping the funding to police or upping the personnel of police did nothing to help black people. Uh, but it did do something to put more money into the hands of 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 white people, more money's into the hands uh, of the these institutions that already were depriving resources out of these communities. Uh, then I think that they do a good job of speaking about Michelle Alexander specifically speaking about the criminal justice system and how once you once you understand that it's designed as a system of social control, then you see that it it, it is successful. You understand that they have been able to keep black people and keep people of color and communities of color and poor communities and working class communities subjugated, exploited and oppressed and in the positions that they have been in for decades. And it's not about stop having it be less violent crime that exists, because if that was the case, they would make they would have an effort to make it be less guns that were flowing, floating through the country. It's not about making it be less people having addiction issues as much as it's about being able to lock up drug dealers because then they would deal with the roots of addictions because then they would deal with, then they would stop drugs from being shipped into the country in the first place. Uh, it's not about giving more opportunities to children or else they would, there would be a, a concerted effort to put more money into the education, educational system. And, and it'd be a, a concerted effort to make these communities and neighborhoods, 
neighborhoods, not communities, but make these neighborhoods that people live in safer. Uh, there will be a, a concerted effort to get rid of poverty. Poverty leads to more violent crime. Poverty leads to more uh, drug selling than than uh, than anything. Uh, and then I think one of the other things that stands out for me here is they talked about how the people and businesses or institutions or individuals who commit let me find the exact phrase so I'm not. Mm. The criminal justice system excuses and ignores crimes of the rich that produce profound social harms while intensely criminalizing the behaviors of the poor and non-white, including those behaviors that produce few social harms. And they spoke about the 2008 uh, bank collapse and the 2008 housing collapse and the the the. the some of the economic things that were going on in that time, I don't want to financial crisis, excuse me, the 2008 financial crisis, which had connections with banking and housing. But they spoke about how nobody went to jail for those things. Nobody went to prison for those things. Uh, there were fines that were paid and people lost their jobs, but there was not a, a task force that was going out and imprisoning a bunch of these blue collar criminals. Or white collar criminals. I'm not sure if that's which which collar they are specifically. Uh, all right, so that's the end of the first, that second chapter. Trying to get back more to the groove of of doing these Rockford readings. So excuse me if I stumbled over some words. I think one of the things that we're going to try to do as well with some of these Rockford readings is maybe do like videos where I sum up each one of the chapters that I read. So I'm going to try to do a video summing up this second chapter, maybe post that on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and stuff like that. Uh, please share this on whatever platform that you're listening to it on. I want to thank you for taking the time out to listen to the Rafa Reader Daily Podcast. Remember, we put these out every day to give people the uh, possibility to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And we will be back tomorrow to begin chapter three of The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. All right, talk to you tomorrow.